You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today, I have the incredible pleasure of introducing Matt Rogers, who's the co-founder and VP of engineering at Nest, which is one of the fastest growing tech companies in the Valley and is pioneering new technology for smart homes of the future. Matt is responsible for all product development at Nest. And prior to Nest, Matt was responsible for iPod software development at Apple. Join me in welcoming Matt. How's it going? Solid. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, so grad students, I, I, I saw undergrads. How many undergrads? Most. Excellent. So uh, uh, I was in your shoes not that long ago, by the way. Uh, so I graduated undergrad in 04. So 10 years. A lot can happen in 10 years, by the way. Uh, actually, in fact, your entire career could happen in 10 years uh, if kind of the stars align in the right way. And I think I'll talk about a few of those things. So uh, let's get started. So one, uh, I'm Matt. Uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a software engineer by training. I went to Carnegie Mellon, uh, not Stanford, by the way. Uh, didn't get into Stanford. Uh, they still ask you to donate, though, if, even if you don't graduate from Stanford, by the way. Uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, that said, uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, kind of how I got here, a little about Nest, and kind of what's gotten really hard as, as we've grown. And, uh, a little bit about kind of what's coming ahead, like a little bit about the future. So to get started, so uh, I've always been involved in technology. I've always loved technology. And I think something that's special of our generation, I'll say that our generation, even though I'm about a decade older than you guys, uh, is that we grew up with technology. I think this is different. This is actually a fundamental change. If you look at kind of the generation before us that was born like in the 70s and our generation, this is a fundamental change. Like we grew up with technology. Uh, we went to school. There were computers in the classroom or computers in the library. Uh, you guys have smartphones and laptops. We didn't have those when I was growing up. But uh, uh, that said, uh, growing up with technology at a young age changes your mindset as to how you interact with the world. And I think that's some of the, some of the fundamental shift that we're seeing. Uh, and actually, it enables a lot of the companies you're seeing created today. So I'll, I'll, I'll touch on a little bit of that more. Uh, so growing up with technology, I had my first computer at like age three, a Mac Plus, one of these beige beige Macintoshes that you see kind of in the, the old photos in the museums these days. But uh, I actually grew up with one of those, and I, I loved it. Uh, even at a you know, really, really young age, age five, I, I wanted to work at Apple. It was kind of my dream job, but I've always wanted to do my entire career. Uh, and I had that in mind, actually, as I went to school, as I kind of learned, uh, even as a kind of teenager, I volunteered at the kind of, in the technology classes, in the computer club, helped them set up their networks and all those kind of things, uh, and loved it. Uh, very different way of growing up than many of my, my classmates, as you can imagine. Many of them were like tennis stars and those kind of things. But I really love computers, and that's what I really wanted to go do. Uh, but then in high school, I had this opportunity to start uh, a robotics club. How, how many of you guys know about FIRST Robotics? How, how many of you guys did FIRST Robotics when you were in high school? Very, very few. So that's interesting. So FIRST, uh, started by Dean Kamen, who invented the Segway, lots of medical technology, uh, a multi-hundred gazillionaire. Uh, and actually uh, a revolutionary kind of guy and a really big thinker. And what he started back when I was in high school was a program to get young students involved in science and technology. So this program called FIRST uh, is kind of like a football for high school students, but more in the technology space. So they design like these big competitions with stadiums and have celebrities come. 
uh, to get people excited about technology. And my school is, you know, we're in a small town with the university, and we're like, I think we could probably start one of these. We'll need some help from the university. We don't have a lot of money, but maybe we can get something started. And myself, my teacher, professor at the University of Florida, I got together, and we started this thing, and it was a ton of fun. Uh, we built robots. We built, basically built a robot that could pick up balls and kind of dunk them in a basket, which was really a big deal for like a bunch of 16-year-olds. And it got me really excited. I was like, I can build this robot. Like, may I can do this as a whole career. And uh, that get me, got me in, uh, down the path towards Carnegie Mellon, uh, entering the robotics program there. And uh, that was an amazing experience. Uh, fundamentally changed my perspective on building technology. Uh, you could build technology that isn't just kind of in the virtual world, but also in the physical world. So one of the things that I did at CMU, and I think a lot of you guys do here at Stanford, is you kind of mix disciplines. It's very cross-disciplinary. So you work on software. There's, there's hardware behind that. There's, there's physical, there's mechanical engineering that goes behind that. Uh, for, for many folks, there's biochemical. Uh, there's you know, there's uh, medical engineering. All these kind of technology domains kind of mixed together. Uh, so that was my first kind of encounter with that. But what also I realized, and uh, with the advice of a, a really close professor, Yoki Matsuoka, who is my advisor at CMU, was that academia is probably not the right way for me to go. Uh, I, I did this summer with her working on a robotic hand uh, that was controlled by the brain. It was a really kind of cool project uh, for an undergrad. Uh, it's something that was way over my head. Uh, but what I realized that this was like a 10-year kind of project, and for me to stick around in her lab for 10 years is probably going to make me go insane. Uh, I, I had a lot of energy. I, I still have a lot of energy, it turns out. Uh, and she's like, Matt, I think for next summer you should intern at a big company and learn about building products. So I, I applied to a bunch of companies, and Apple called me first. And I was like, holy shit, how awesome is this? Like, the company I've always wanted to work for as a kid, where I have like, the pictures of myself as a 12-year-old like, smiling in front of Infinite Loop. Uh, I'm like, I can go intern at Apple. This is amazing. Uh, they, they called me back. I was like, I have to be there. Uh, and they're like, we don't want you to work on the Mac. We're, we're starting this other team called the iPod team. They're doing music players. I was like, great, that sounds great. I didn't really know what the iPod was or why it was important, uh, but it sounded great. Uh, so I got there, and they didn't tell me what I was working on or what I was going to do. But I sat there, I got to my desk, and they, they stuck me next to the printer cube. So like, there was the big you know, laser printer that the whole office would use, and like, my, my computer was kind of shoved in there. Uh, and I was like the intern. Uh, it was like kind of the classic intern job where like people would walk by and they'd get their stuff off the printer and say, oh, hey, I'm Steve. Uh, what do you do? Uh, I'm Matt. I'm the intern. And that was kind of the, that was how I started my career at Apple. And on my second day, uh, a, a guy walked by and said, hey, I'm Tony. I'm like, hey, I'm Matt, the intern. I said, so what, what do you do here? Uh, he's like, well, I, I built the iPod. I'm like, oh, you're a really good guy to know. Uh, and, and that's how I met my co-founder now at Nest, Tony Fidel. Uh, uh, my second day as an intern, and I would completely embarrassed myself not knowing who he was. How, how would I know? I was the intern, right? Uh, that was a really fun summer, though. Uh, not in the fun sense where like, we had a lot of beer, uh, although some interns did that. I, I actually didn't get a chance to do that. Uh, my internship centered around reinventing how they built the iPod. So iPod was a really small team within Apple. It's kind of a startup within Apple. It was an experiment. And uh, when you do kind of startups, there's sometimes corners you cut to get things going, uh, technical debt you may accumulate. You guys may be familiar with something like a concept of this. And uh, the manufacturing for the iPod was never something that the team fully owned. It was kind of something they outsourced. And uh, they said, this is probably something that we should own. Like, we're building millions of these a year. We probably should know how we build them. Uh, so that was my job as an intern, is figure out how we built iPods and how we could do it better, how we could test them better, and then rewrite all the software we used to manufacture them. 
It's a pretty easy task, right? <laughs> That's not really a big deal. It's something that you'd definitely give an intern. Like, responsible for probably 25% you know, of the company revenue at the time. Why not? Uh, so that's my job. Uh, and uh, part of how I've always approached problems is, uh, uh, even as a kid, my mom would say, like, Matt, we need to go dig a ditch. Great, let's go dig a ditch. Uh, by the way, that's good career advice, like, in general. Like, when someone gives you a really hard problem, just, like, get excited about it and figure out how to solve it. Uh, some people tend to spin, and that doesn't always work. So really excited to kind of reinvent how to manufacture iPods. And uh, I did a lot of all-nighters, as it turns out, and to the point where there was one day when Tony had to call my boss and said, can you make sure the intern goes to sleep tonight because well, you know, he's got a big day tomorrow. Uh, it, th there was a time kind of around August, just before I was ready to go back to school, when they said, I think it's time to kind of roll this forward. And they were getting ready to launch the iPod Mini for that holiday season. Uh, so my stuff was going to go live. And they were going to switch the manufacturing line over and hope this would all work. And I had tested it all ahead of time. It was going to be fine, right? Uh, turns out it didn't all work, and nothing ever works the first time. But uh, after a series of all-nighters, uh, we actually got things running. And uh, I worked with the team in China. We got things up and running. So I had proved myself as an intern, which is an opportunity that many of you guys probably have. Hey, how many of you guys intern over the summer at company startups around the area? So for those of you who didn't raise your hand, please do it. Like, it is the most valuable experience you could, you could find. Uh, for the uh, Mayfield fellows in the back, like, I'm sure you guys got a great experience last summer, uh, or not this, this summer that's coming. Uh, we had a bunch of Mayfield fellows at Nest last year. It was great. But internships, super important. You'll learn a ton. You'll get a feeling for what it's like to have like, basically life in the real world. Uh, and that's not just in the cliche sense, but also like, to get a feel of working within a company. Really important. It turns out working on, on hard problems at school and building projects at school to a, a deadline for a quarter or semester is very different than when the company depends on your success. I, I, Part of the conversation I'd had with my manager at the time was, like, if I had failed, uh, we may not have iPods for Christmas. And uh, uh, shareholders are really unhappy when that happens. Uh, it's kind of a detrimental. And when you, if, you, if you're interested in entrepreneurship and you start companies, the same kind of thing happens. Like, if you fail, the company may go under. And these kind of things have consequences. So that, that was my internship at Apple. Obviously, they invited me back, and I was thrilled to come back. So uh, went back to Apple. Uh, in 05, after I finished my, my master's, and started out as a software engineer on the iPod team, uh, basically on the tail end of that first iPod Nano. Uh, and being the new guy on the team who had built some credibility, but was still pretty much the new guy, they said, let's give him the kind of the, the least important project and something that you know, may not ever ship, but you know, we need someone to work on it because we got to have a resource on this project. Uh, and that was this new prototype project called the iPhone. Uh, it, it, it's, it's funny, like, you guys laugh. At the time, we laughed, too. We're like, who cares about this phone thing? We make iPods here. Like, we're never going to sell any phones. Seriously, I'm not joking. Uh, so so we, we started this very, very skunk works kind of thing out at Apple. Very, very small team. It was like a hardware guy, uh, antenna designer, myself, and a program manager. Really, really small team uh, to start the first iPhone. And that first prototype did not really work. It was kind of a disaster. Uh, but we learned a lot along the way, and 18 months later, you know, kind of after hundreds of people's efforts, it popped the first iPhone, which was a completely different story for a completely different time, uh, and many books have been written about that year. Uh, but it was nonetheless a very exciting year, which we learned a lot. And I think for me, the most important thing I learned was how to lead programs. So when you're the first guy working on something, uh, what happens next is like the second guy has questions on what the stuff the first guy worked on, 
And hopefully the first guy is able to articulate what he did. And if, if you can imagine that cycle perpetuating, uh, when you have guy 100 joining a project, uh, it's good to have a founder knowledge. So that's kind of the, the, the kind of culture we built at the time. And the reputation I had developed was that if you had a question, had a problem, like talk to Matt, he probably built it, and you know, ask him how it went. And that's kind of my informal introduction to leadership. That's how I kind of learned. Uh, it was never something I thought I'd get into. I'm a really introverted guy, uh, super, super quiet. Like, I, I don't speak in public, albeit speaking in public right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, but as you can imagine, one of the things that you learn is that uh, kind of building these connections with your fellow coworkers and project mates is, is that like, you start to build a team. And it's like building robotics back in high school or playing soccer. And, and you're on the team. You're working with each other. And if someone misses a shot, you try to help them out. So that's what we did. And uh, I learned how to lead teams through that and learned how to communicate and how to build project plans and uh, kind of learned how to do the end to end. And th throughout the kind of the rest of my career at Apple, I was kind of the guy they gave new stuff to to go build teams. So when we started uh, kind of taking over and doing a, a, a new shuffle, uh, like, Matt, can you start the new shuffle program? No problem. I'll go do that. By the way, no one else wanted to do shuffle. It's one of those kind of like hobby projects that no one else wanted to do. But it turned out to be a really big success for Apple, too. So again, like building your career on things that many people think are not important, but uh, sometimes are worth taking a bet on. There's a couple other things like that, too, like, uh, like manufacturing. Like, manufacturing is not like the, the glory work of Apple, as you can imagine. Uh, like the UI work and the industrial design is kind of the big, sexy stuff. But it turns out manufacturing is really important. And you can learn how things are made that way. And, build a whole career out of it, which I kind of did, actually. So that was my career at Apple. It uh, was really exciting. It uh, was basically my dream job, something I've always wanted to do my entire life. And then I left. And uh, this is one of those kind of moments when like, my family would call me and my grandpa would say, like, are you crazy? You're making <laughs> how much money with a really stable job, with the biggest company in the world, and you want to leave? And you want to not make any money? How are you going to do this? I'm like, I have some money saved up. It's going to be OK. Uh, Tony, I have a really cool idea that we're, we're going to go push. Uh, and we did that, actually. And it's funny that the same people who were very much naysayers then are now like my biggest advocates. It's funny how that works. Uh, 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 these kind of things are, 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 families are complicated. I'll put it that way. Uh, fa family is a completely different, there's a different course for family dynamics. Uh, psychology school, that's down the hall. Like, I'm not going to cover that one. <laughs> uh, so starting Nest. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion, which got us started with Nest. Uh, I'd always been interested in the home. I, I had bought this house back in Apple. It was like a 1970s house. And it was like literally the epitome of the 70s. Uh, like beige appliances, like LED displays with dials on them, like the you know, wood, wood paneled walls, like literally like the house from the 70s. Uh, and, I was on the toilet with an iPhone. It didn't really make any sense. Like, these things didn't work all around me. Uh, and I, my whole world had changed. Like, and I assume yours, like, how many of you guys use iPhones, Android phones every day? I, I, I'm assuming 100% of hands are up right now. Uh, that's my point. Like, our lives have changed, yet our homes are essentially exactly the same as they were in the 1970s. And that's fucked up, by the way. It doesn't make any sense. It, it makes literally no sense. And that was the opportunity we saw. But you can't build a company with a kind of a, uh, you, could, you could have a grand vision, but that's completely impractical. Like, if you ever pitch an investor saying, we have a really grand vision, we're going to reinvent the home, uh, we'll tell you later how we're going to do it. 
uh, they'll probably laugh at you because like, that's not how you build companies. You, 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 it's good to have a, a grand vision in this huge roadmap of things you want to do, but it's good to start with something really, really concrete, discrete, and that alone could be a business. So that's what we pitched. We pitched the idea of, let's go build a company based on thermostats. And uh, many people laughed at us then, too, actually. It was really funny. Uh, I built, actually, I think I built my entire career, actually, probably my entire life's work on things that no one cares about. Uh, and I've actually done really well doing it, which goes to show you that uh, things that don't people, people don't care about actually are really important. And that's what we found out. So Tony and I, back in the day, we're back in the day is like 2009. Holy cow, it's actually not that long ago. Uh, we're doing some research in the home and basically figuring out what can we do. He had building a home. I had a home. We looked at all these products. And it turns out that heating and cooling are half of home's energy. And yet, everyone knows what products exist there. Like, uh, they do now, now that we've kind of brought this to people's attention. But back when, when we started the company, like, no one was aware of how much energy was going into their heating and cooling. It's like kind of $1,000 per household per year. That's kind of mass scale. If you think about large problems, things that should keep governments up at night, uh, home HVAC is probably not one of them, but should, actually. It's like, it's, that's more than all the solar plants in the US, probably the worldwide combined. Uh, it's more than all the nuclear power plants in the US produce. It's kind of that level scale. Uh, but yeah, no one was really paying attention to it. Uh, but we realized that we could build a company just doing that. And, and given that company, we could then build a platform to do more. That was the whole premise. It was actually really simple. Uh, and that's what we went to go do. So the two of us got started uh, early, early 2010 uh, and started calling our buddies, like the people we had built relationships with back in all those teams in previous years. For me, that was the guys I built the iPod with, the guys I built the iPhone work uh, with. Uh, that professor who convinced me not to go to academia, she joined the team. Uh, be, be friends with your professors. They may come in handy later. <laughs> uh, Tony called his buddy. So guys he'd worked with at General Magic, kind of the, the iPhone of 20 years ago uh, that no one has ever heard of, but was actually a really kind of great hub of technology. And we got this team together of some really, really smart, motivated folks uh, who actually took no salary. Like they, they believed in us. They believed that we could build a company doing thermostats. Uh, and that's what we did. And we spent a better part of 18 months building a thermostat. And uh, when Jose, who, who runs our recruiting team, and I would go out and meet, meet candidates, or at this point, all candidates were people we knew, and were like, we want you to quit your job running the iPhone team to go build a thermostat with us. And most of them were like, you're crazy. But some did not think we were crazy. Like, I could see this. Energy savings, hundreds of millions of homes. This could be a big business opportunity. And uh, a lot of people joined. So, that first year, we hired about 70 people. And that's a lot for a startup. Uh, it turns out doing kind of the end-to-end -end in technology is really complicated. So we realized that in order to do this well, we had to do the end-to-end. -end. This is something we learned at Apple. Apple does this really well. Uh, they have the iPod, they have iTunes, and they have this music store. And when the three work together, it creates an ecosystem, locks people in, at the same time, creates a great user experience. It's kind of the best of both worlds. Users win, company wins. It's kind of the best way. Did the same thing with the iPhone. iPhone, App Store, App Ecosystem. It's freaking great. How many of you guys have iPhones? Case in point. Works. So given that premise, we wanted to apply the same thing to the home. So let's go build a great thermostat. Let's build great software for it. And let's build apps and services that go along with it. 
And it turns out that's a really big thing for a small company to take on. Like we thought that would have been pretty easy. Like Tony and I actually estimated that it was about six or seven people, six months, and we'd probably get this thing launched. And it turns out we were off by about an order of magnitude. And fortunately, we had some great investors, uh, some, some really fantastic folks. Uh, uh, Randy Komisar, Kleiner Perkins, uh, helped us basically get this thing off the ground. And uh, it's really nice to have investors who believe in you. I think, uh, actually, how many of you guys plan on starting a company, raising money sometime in the next year or two? OK, so a few of you guys. So my advice to you guys is don't chase the money. The money is not important. Uh, when you think about raising money, uh, like how much you raise is actually not important. Uh, you'll get term sheets. That'll happen. Well, at least in this economy, it'll happen. Uh, what's more important is who you work with. And we were really fortunate that we worked with a partner who believed in us, who had worked with us, and honestly would do anything to support us. So as we realized, oh, shit, we got the plan wrong by an order of magnitude. We're going to need to raise some more money. He was there to help us. Uh, it helps kind of evangelize us around the VC community to kind of get more folks involved. Uh, as we realized, holy cow, this may take a little more time than we thought, right there behind us. Uh, and as we needed to scale to go from 30 people to 70 people to 300 people, we had a partner who was there with us. It was really nice. Uh, I wish that all companies had kind of partners uh, and board members like that. Not, not every company does. It was really tough, though. As, as it turns out, you know, every entrepreneur will probably tell you that it's hard. And I think, in fact, in this series, I think Ben Horowitz is the last speaker. And I think his whole shtick is like the hard things about hard things. It turns out they are hard. It's, it, it's obvious, but there's no real way for me to even to verbalize how difficult it is. As an entrepreneur, you are really on your own. Like, yes, you may have a VC partner, uh, you know, but in, in the end, like, he's an investor. He's going to try to make a return. Fortunately, Randy was not one of those kind of guys. But for, in fact, most entrepreneurs you know, have VCs who are out to make a return. I had one co-founder. The two of us were literally on our own. Uh, fortunately, we were really close. Like, we call each other every morning. We still do. Like, every morning, 8.30, we, got, we get on the phone with each other on our way to work, and we talk about the things that were happening in our day. Uh, at the end of the day, we usually call each other on the way home and have the day go and what kind of things we need to work on next. But really, like, you're very much alone. Uh, you know, your early employees, your team, they're with you. But being an entrepreneur is a very lonely place. And you'll, you may hear this from, from other entrepreneurs. It's very difficult. Like, Things will go wrong. In fact, everything went wrong for us. And to the outside world, it looks awesome. We've done a great job uh, getting this company launched, building momentum with our marketing, with our sales, with our product. But in fact, everything went wrong. Uh, our initial plan was completely wrong. We had to rework that. Our, our launch plan, we were going to launch uh, in, in Best Buy Retail. That was our plan. Like, build the product, put it online, put it in Best Buy Retail. It's going to be great. Best Buy backed out at the last minute. We had no retail. Fantastic. It was going to be great, uh, but we, we worked through it. It turns out uh, when you have an attitude where like, when things go wrong, you just like, let's just figure out how to, get, how to make it right. Uh, and if you have a team culture where when problems happen, people don't freak out and just figure out how to plow through it, uh, things tend to go in your, in your favor. So uh, I think in terms of big lessons, like things that I've learned uh, is that surround yourself with a team that augments your weaknesses so that when things go wrong, you have kind of your trusted council of folks who have all these different perspectives who could figure out solutions. It actually, it, and it actually worked. So to the point where when we lost that Best Buy relationship in the early days, by the way, Best Buy is one of our strongest channels today. They, they turned out they learned. Uh, <laughs> uh, we were like, we, we got to come up with a different strategy. So let's put it online and see how we do. Turns out we sold out. That was great. Marketing worked. Uh, 
Turns out PR, also very valuable. Uh, people will tell you like PR is the best means of early marketing, and it's 100% true. It's essentially free. And if you have something that's really cool and newsworthy, people will write about it. And when people write about it, other people will talk about it. Really great, really cool. Uh, so that got us kind of out the gate. Uh, and we realized very quickly is we still needed broader retail. Like, we need a bigger presence. How are people going to learn about Nest products? Uh, so we called a bunch of different retailers to kind of get us a, a, a sense of who would be interested in carrying this product. Uh, most folks don't carry thermostats in retail. The kind of folks who carry thermostats are like Home Depot and Lowe's. Well, we can sell there. Why not? They don't really sell consumer electronics. Uh, but if we could teach them that part, then maybe we could build a big business there. So we, you know, we called both, and Lowe's was kind of knocked off their chair. They loved this. And they, they, we started with Lowe's uh, and a few hundred doors to kind of see how things went. And, and they went amazing. They went really well. We were selling you know, several per store per week, which is a huge metric, by the way. Like people talk about growth metrics for companies these days, and millions of users or tens of millions of daily actives. It turns out when you sell physical goods, a couple per store per week is actually a really big deal when you start to multiply it out. And we saw these growth numbers, like, we may have something here. So we started calling other partners. Like, you know, and, and we actually built a whole story about this. At the same time, behind the scenes, uh, myself, my team, working on the next thing. Uh, other lesson learned at Apple. Uh, always be working on the next thing, because chances are, your competitors are going to be copying your first thing. It's still true, by the way. Uh, it's still true. Even today, uh, you see, like, you know, Apple announces iPhone 5. All competitors try to copy iPhone 5. Apple iPhones announces iPhone 6. All competitors try to copy iPhone 6. Good thing they're kind of always looking one step ahead. It's a good strategy. So we were already one step ahead thinking about kind of our next product. And, and we announced a Nest Protect, a smoke alarm. Again, another kind of unloved product that no one cares about. But in fact, helps save lives. Really important. Uh, and we realized that we can actually start building this into a much greater vision. Uh, a, great, a vision we call the conscious home. The idea that instead of... You hear about smart home. That's kind of a really geeky kind of thing. Uh, like, I may want a smart home, but I am not the general populace. My mom doesn't want a smart home. She just wants a home that works, uh, where she doesn't really need to be an IT person for her house, where it just kind of works and lets her know when things are wrong and kind of, kind of anticipates her needs. That's what we built. We built it with two products. Could we build it with more products? Could we enable other people to build it in their products? That, that, was, that was the greater vision, and we had reached the point of scale where we could start doing that. So we, you know, we were off the races. We realized uh, this could be a really big thing. Uh, at this point, we're about 300 people, significant, significant revenue. Uh, and again, like the Valley often is not known for revenue. Uh, most startups kind of grow like this, but there's no dollars behind that. It's just users. Uh, we actually had a revenue curve like this. It's really good. One of those kind of things that investors really love. Uh, and we're thinking, like, how do you grow this to the next level? Uh, how much capital do we need? If we're going to be 1,000 people with seven product lines and all these businesses and full kind of mass marketing. How are we going to fund this thing? And we realized we needed a really big round. Uh, and it turns out there are multiple ways of accomplishing this. And uh, looking at all the options, fortunately, we had a really strong partner in Google. Uh, and they had stepped up big time to help us accomplish this vision. So Tony and I, about eight months ago now, uh, decided to sell the company to Google. Uh, and this is not like in the classic kind of exit sense, it's in the kind of entrance sense, in that like ready to take, a, take on the big guys. So uh, when you're going, trying to grow a company from zero to $100 billion, uh, there's a lot of steps along the way. 
And getting to your first 100 million, you know, your first 500 million, there's still a long way to go. And uh, it turns out Wall Street actually is very fickle. And they expect quarterly profits, and it's really hard to invest long term. That was all the advice we got from our advisors. So it was really fortunate that we actually could have the best of both worlds. Yeah, that's what we ended up doing. So uh, Nest is now part of Google. That said, we are a completely independent company. Like we are on the same path we've always been on, building the exact same product, the same vision, but with the resources of a big company behind us. It's really nice. It's, really, it's a kind of unique opportunity that most folks do not have. Kind of our, our next stage, kind of where we are today and where we're going next, is how we kind of reach the mass. And that is a very big challenge. There are very few brands, at least very few new brands, that reach mass. And when I say mass, I mean tens of millions, 50 million, 100 million consumers. That is a massive, massive reach. And very few companies ever get there. Like the, the kind of brands you think of, like in terms of mass brands out of the valley, like Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter. Like these are like the, the very few kind of mass brands that are created in the valley. Uh, but we're trying to build one. And that is a mission that takes a long time. That said, it's something that we invest in. So we invest in new products. We invest in the ecosystem. We invest in marketing. So you'll see a lot of marketing from Nest this holiday season. Turns out, it takes actually mass marketing. PR only gets you so far. At some point, you have to reach the mass consumer. And another kind of big lesson. Also, turns out you can't do it alone. And this is a realization that we only had, I'd say, about a year ago. Is it takes more than just our products to create an ecosystem. You really need to start bringing other people in. But there are very few brands that we thought kind of represented this conscious home vision that we wanted to go make. So we kind of we scoured the world, we talked to many folks, and we realized that we could create a team within Nest to kind of help build them kind of in a greater sense. And we did that. We have more stuff coming there and more announcements in the next couple of weeks about works with Nest. Uh, but this is a very big vision. It's really exciting. Uh, and that's where we are today. It turns out, like, many people say, like, oh, has your life changed? Has your company changed? It actually hasn't. And uh, part of what I tell my team is, like, we have such a strong vision ahead of us, such a kind of a big world to go build. Uh, we have to go build that. And, like, let's not get kind of clouded in the, the valley sense and the kind of inside baseball that happens here. Uh, let's go build a great company. And that's what we've been doing. So I am extremely informal, as, you, as, you've, as you've seen, uh, very off the cuff and very raw. But I would love to kind of take your questions and kind of, you know, how, how we can help you guys along your way. I've been in your shoes not that long ago. Sure, up front. So what motivated you to not push the thermostat inside of Apple itself and then like break out and make the company? Because Apple has like all the resources to- It's funny you should say that. So, uh, yes, yeah. so the question is, is why did I not decide to build that thermostat back at Apple before I left? And it's funny you should say that. Uh, so my, my boss at the time, uh, who was running kind of the iPod, iPhone division uh, after Tony, uh, asked me, to say, like, why don't you build your startup with an Apple? And I said, well, it's going to take me a long time to get to a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, how much patience is Apple going to have to get to a billion? It turns out when you're making $50 billion a year, like a $10 million kind of project doesn't really get them excited. Uh, and this is something that is kind of represents the inertia of big companies and something that I think keeps a lot of CEOs and boards up at night. And in all my conversations I've had with senior leadership at Google, it's something that's very different about Google. Investing in new things that may never pan out is not something that big companies do very often, uh, which is why we had to do it on our own. There was really no way we could have done it with an Apple. 
Like, even now, thermostats may never be a $10 billion business. But it was definitely a key business that we saw to go build, to then, to then go build the next big thing, to, to kind of build it into something bigger. But that would have been very difficult to do with an Apple. To move the needle would have been almost impossible. Sure. Can you kind of walk us through the first few months when you came up with this idea? Did you immediately go to a VC and start pitching your idea to get funding? Were you working in the garage somewhere on your own with Tony? Or can you kind of walk yes. us through that? So the question is that, you know, describe the first few months of Nest and kind of coming up with the idea through kind of that, the, the early days. So the early days of Nest were actually really mm, unglamorous, I'd put it that way. Uh, so Tony and I met uh, at Madeira at Rosewood uh, for lunch, uh, kind of between his house and, and my office at the time. And we, had, we, you know, we kind of had our big brainstorm, like this is something we should probably investigate, something we should, we should definitely look at. And actually we spent six months investigating and looking. So very unglamorous. Like, we did like, lots of late night Skype calls. We would hold ourselves in kind of walled conference rooms and friends' companies and just brainstorm and do whiteboarding and do internet research and you know, cold call experts, uh, which is a really funny thing, like hearing like, Tony, so Tony Fidel, guy invented the iPod, now CEO of Nest, like cold calling experts at the EPA. He's like, like, hey, I have some questions about thermostat industry. And people actually asked and you know, answered. It was, it was great. Uh, but it was really unglamorous. We did a lot of market research. We really wanted to kind of get it right before we said go, and before we started calling friends to hire them, and before we called VCs to raise money. Uh, it was about six months later we realized business is there. This is definitely a business opportunity. We could make a better product. It was clear, like with our talents, with our skills, with our network, the products would be better, for sure. That we could make a difference. And that we could make a big enough difference. That was kind of our key metrics. Uh, and we could do it in a reasonable enough time. This is not something that would take three, four years to get the first product done. And once we had that, then we started pitching first employees. And we hired about mm, 10, 12 folks uh, in that early days to kind of build sketch prototypes, you know, prototype UI, first industrial design, build the first prototype, early software, first app. At that point, we realized like, we had enough meat on the bones, we probably could talk to some investors. But we had the kind of, by the time we talked to our first investor, we had full business plan. We had our go-to-market, which completely changed, by the way. Like, plans do change. Uh, the key is just to have a plan. Something, you know, something to, a, a guiding force to push the team. That said, plans change. They guarantee you they will. Like, no one gets their plan ran right the first try. But yeah, that, that's kind of the, the early days were completely unglamorous. We actually started the company in a garage. Uh, so Palo Alto real estate's really expensive, as you guys are probably aware of. Uh, and given that we didn't raise money and uh, didn't, couldn't pay our employees, we just basically worked out of a garage. And it was an amazing experience. Like, if you ever had the opportunity to start a company in a garage, do it. It is amazing. Like we actually name our conference rooms in our now glorious campus down the street uh, after some of the kind of funny things we did in the garage, like no squirrels, like the squirrels would run in the garage. <laughs> Seriously, like there's a conference room called No Squirrels because we used to have squirrels in the garage. Yeah, early days, super unglamorous, but really, really critical. Like you want to make sure that you believe in what you're doing. And that, because if you don't believe, like if you're not all in, like if you're not a zealot for your cause, then for sure your first employees aren't going to believe you. And for sure, you're not going to be able to convince an investor. You have to have the kind of the whole picture. Other questions? In the back. Yeah, how did you think about crafting the culture at Nest? Were there elements in <coughs> Apple's culture that you tried to emulate or do differently when you started scaling quickly? So how did we think about crafting the culture? Do we emulate Apple, or do we do things differently? A little bit of both, actually. So it was, it was a very intentional process. So Apple did a lot of things really well, and they still do. Design. Best in the industry. Hands down, right? They do. <laughs> I, I think so. They, they certainly do very well. 
uh, deep, deep technological integration. Uh, thinking about the end-to-end, -end, they do that really well. Marketing, they do really, really well. Uh, team culture, we wanted to change some things. Uh, we were a startup. We're not a big company, and we don't have Steve Jobs. So we knew we had to do things a little bit differently. Uh, so we decided to do something that was very un-Apple, and to have a completely open, transparent, non-confidential culture in the company. It's the exact opposite of Apple, by the way. And I, and I, so back at Apple, I had teams working on iPhone, iPod, and iPad. And the iPad guys couldn't talk to the iPod guys about what they were working on, albeit they were on the same team. So uh, as you can imagine, as a startup, you can't really do things that way. Otherwise, your product play doesn't work. Uh, so that was a very early realization. Like, we can't do that. Other thing we realized very early on is we're a small company. We're working in a garage. Everyone's in tight quarters. Probably can't hire any jackasses. Uh, like, like, you guys laugh. It's actually, it's a real, it's a real thing. We still do it. Uh, it's one of the first things the first interviewer usually asks for candidates is, are you a jackass? And they always say no. But then we spend the next six, seven, eight interviews assessing are they really a jackass or not, as well as are they, are they great at what they do. And, and that's something that actually has stuck with us. Like, like we, we realize that we're working in tight quarters, everyone's working together, everyone needs to work well, well together. But actually, as companies grow, that's a really good thing to keep. So we don't, when, when you say company culture, uh, we don't have like a, 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 you know, these big plaques that you say, like, this is what we stand for. Here's the five things that are core principles of Nest. Like, we don't have that. We have a vision of what we're building, and we have a, a great group of people. And that's our culture. The people we have are our culture. And the culture is more than just Tony and I at this point. It's hundreds of other people and 100 other leaders. So it's, it's a really exciting. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to go build. In the middle. So, um, how do you deal with collecting lots of data for the smartphone? <laughs> are planning to go into hundreds of millions of homes. How do you deal with uh, collecting so much data, especially in light of uh, recent data breaches? <laughs> so how do we think about data collection, especially as we scale? Uh, we think about it a lot, actually. It's probably one of the biggest topics covered at the executive level in the company today. That you know, new product development, business, et cetera. Uh, privacy, actually, number one issue that we, that we, th we talk about. Uh, People are concerned about privacy, and they should. Uh, the world has changed. As I said, like, we've grown up with technology. Uh, our parents really ha didn't. Uh, uh, it used to be that uh, you'd have to get warrants for phone tapping, all these kind of things. The world's completely changed. Uh, completely, completely changed. Like, uh, uh, and it's something that companies need to take very, very seriously. So uh, we are, I'll use the word transparent, but it almost doesn't even describe it. So we are very literal about what we do. So we have, we have a privacy policy. Most companies do. But that's not what we expect people to read. So we have something we call privacy principles. We publish it on the web. It's something that I've talked about publicly many times. Uh, guiding principles that, that guide basically how we do development and how we do our work and how we establish trust with the user. So for example, like we don't sell information. That's not something we ever want to do, ever will do. We don't share information. If we ever do share information on your behalf for your benefit, for example, linking your thermostat with your jawbone so you could have your uh, heating and cooling system turn on when you wake up in the morning. Uh, that's your initiative. You're going to do that. And it's going to be very clear what you do and why and kind of what data is exchanged and giving you the opportunity to close and shut that link down at any time. Uh, we let people delete their data and kind of for, let us forget them. Uh, and also, we don't collect data gratuitously. We do it kind of for their benefit and to give them new features. And what we've realized is if we're very straightforward with people and we stick to our guns and we do what we say we do, uh, people do trust us. And we give them lots of great benefits. 
And people like that, it turns out. They like, they like great benefits. That said, it's still not for everyone. And as we've scaled, as we've kind of entered the mass, we've decided very discreetly, but we, we do talk about, uh, that you don't have to connect your devices, that you could build this conscious home without being on the internet, which is very controversial for most people in Silicon Valley. Like, holy cow, connected device, but not on the internet. That you could build this intelligence locally in the home and give people kind of control over their data. So that's something that, that's very real to us. That said, is always on our minds. And I think as you guys build companies or work at companies, it's something that you should think about, too. And most companies, it's not on top of mind, but it really should be. And I think it's nest opportunity as a leader in our space to kind of lead the charge here. In the back. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the negotiation process when you sold your company? The negotiation <laughs> process. Uh, so we didn't really, I think we didn't really negotiate. That's probably the wrong way to put it. But uh, we only wanted to work with one company. Uh, there are very few companies in the world that invest in new areas that may never pan out business-wise, like Google. If you think about like Project Loon, like these hot air balloons that give internet to kind of third world countries or people that don't have internet. Uh, self-driving cars. Like these very bold initiatives. Uh, Google's willing to invest in those. And what Tony and I realized is that is the exact right place for us to go build Nest. And we had the exact right partner in Larry. So, you know, obviously, there's all the legal stuff and lawyers do their thing, but like, we were committed. This is very obvious for us. It was, it was not a negotiation. It was the best way to do an acquisition. Could you elaborate on, like, I know you discussed your privacy policy earlier. How that works with Google. Yes. Yeah, so, I know, cause I, I, so, so how does Nest privacy policy work within Google? And the answer is completely separate. And, and it, was, it was part of the negotiations we had with Google, uh, is that, like, yes, we were going to be a Google company, but not really a Google company. That we have our own office, we have our own management team, we have our own culture, our own team, our own data centers, our own privacy policy. And they agreed. It's the right thing to do. Like, people's home is their private place. They, they should be able to keep that separate from their Google accounts. So we do. That said, like, th there may be cool integrations we could do, or some, you know, there's things like Google Now. Like, you know, as you're driving home, your house could kind of heat up on your way. But that's going to be your opt-in, something that you want to do, and you'll go to google.com slash nest and say, I want to link my, my accounts, and this is what's going to happen, and I always get on link. It, it, was, it was something that we had top of mind, and something that we've always had top of mind, and that's one of the reasons why we're able to do the great things we, we do. Like, if we did nest again within a big company, kind of fully integrated, it, we may actually not move as fast as we are now. Other questions? In the back. You talked about the importance of a startup working on its second or, second or always the next product. Can you talk about why you chose the smoke detector and how that fit into the, how that makes sense as the next sort of bowling pin in the strategy of the conscious home? Yeah. So questions about uh, why smoke detector and, and why work on a second product? Like, like, why not iterate on the first? And uh, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, we actually did iterate a lot on the first. And immediately after launching, the first thing we did was get on the phone with kind of customers, our kind of early customers, early adopters, uh, hear what they're calling our call center about, what they're sending emails about, and fix kind of any issues they had. Before you scale, you want to make sure you're getting ahead of those. And we even actually built a second thermostat immediately after launching the first one. We realized, oh, there's some things we can do better here. We got some customer feedback here. We should definitely iterate and fix there. But at the same time, we realized that in order to grow the business in the way we wanted to, we wanted to enter another vertical. And the way we picked smoke alarms is actually very much how we picked thermostats. So overlooked product. Everyone's got one. We can make a difference. And we have the skills to make a difference. So we looked at kind of many products in the home. Turns out, number one cause of fire death, like why people die in fires at home, 
it's because they have smoke alarms, but the batteries are dead, or they took the batteries out. Like, that's, that's retarded. Like, that's, like, like, that is a basic user experience issue. Like, these things beep in the middle of the night, they're annoying, people hit them with a hammer, or take the batteries out, and then they die. It's a really serious issue. And that's why we built the product. That's the whole point. That's why we did it. Like, so like how, why we built it? It was really that basic principle. It was that easy. Everyone's got one. They're frustrated with them. We could do a better job. That, that, that's really how we did it. Other questions? All right. Um, so did you always want to be an entrepreneur? And then um, after working that you... Did I always want to be an entrepreneur? I actually never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, uh, from age five, I wanted to work at Apple. And even when I was five, Apple was a big company. Uh, and there was an association with beautiful technology, things that just work. If, if a child could use it, it's probably pretty good. And, and that was something that always intrigued me, is building things that were really easy to use that a child could use. And uh, I've always wanted to work at Apple. And still, I have a ton of respect for the company and a ton of respect for the team there. Uh, but what I think what I learned at Apple is that you could apply that same ethos, that same methodology, the same way of building things to other things. I think that's what we've done at Nest. So uh, I actually never, never wanted to be an entrepreneur. But I think some of the same skills it takes to build products, to build teams, are the same skills to build companies. Where and how did you learn how to do product re market research? <sighs> how did I learn how to do market research? Hmm. Google. Not at Google, but using Google. It actually, it, 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 I'm serious. Uh, most of the early research Tony and I did was like we would Google like you know, thermostat market and like see what follow links there, and we say, oh, this is an expert, this guy at the EPA who did Energy Star for thermostats. We probably should call that guy. So we called that guy, asked him what he knew, and hey, is there anybody else we should probably talk to that you know? And he referred to this guy at Berkeley who did thermostat research, and we talked to that guy, and he referred to some guy in Southern California. We called that guy, and we started building our network and learning about industry and. It's much like you'd probably do research for a project at Stanford. Like, you don't go to the library. You, you know, you, you start calling people. You start, you know, basically doing, doing, the, doing the rounds. Yeah. I think a lot of people have talked about the user experience on your products and the design aspects. Um, beyond sort of you and Tony, is that something you explicitly hire for or something maybe you structure your teams in order to optimize? How did you create? So how do you create great user experience? It actually is all about people. Uh, and yes, like Tony and I have a great user experience background. We built great stuff at Apple. But at our scale today, uh, like we are the final editors of when a product ships. Uh, we have a whole team of folks doing user experience today in industrial design and user interface design. Uh, we hire folks. Uh, like we ha hire the whole spectrum. We hire things from pe people who are new college grads and actually people who didn't even go to college. Uh, to people who are very seasoned. And what we look for is empathy, people who appreciate what users have gone through and can get themselves in a user's mind. Uh, it turns out when you build a product for yourself, it's not always the right product. And not everybody is a 30-year-old male who lives in Silicon Valley. So it, it, it's actually really important many people get this wrong. Uh, build a product for your consumers and understand who they are. So we actually know who our consumers are. We actually have, like, we call it eight profiles of people, like different families, different demographics, different age groups, children, no children retiree, still working, big house, small house. And we, we put ourselves in their minds and in their lives and figure out what they need. And that's how our user experience is done. It's really actually, uh, it's very empathetic. And then we hire great graphic and visual designers to kind of make that a reality. I think it's a little different than many companies do user, user interface design. Um, how did you find your venture capital? 
I mean, uh, if I want to become an entrepreneur, do I enter the market with a lot of my own money, or? How, how did we approach venture capital, and did we put a lot of our own money in? Uh, so yes, we did actually put a lot of our own money in. Uh, like not only like our own sweat equity, and that no one got paid in the early days, but like Tony and I basically funded the company for the first seven, eight months. Like basically first year, actually. Uh, fortunately, we were able to do that. Yeah, we did okay at Apple. Uh, but when we approached venture capitalists, we started with people that we were, one, knew, were highly regarded, or people we knew already you know, kind of knew and trusted. Like we did it based on our network. Uh, the key was not, like we, we didn't cold call people. Like we asked people we trusted who they trusted. Kind of how you do networking is actually really, really basic. Unfortunately, we had a network of people who knew, knew people. Uh, but I'm sure you actually you know people who know people. It's like you, you may not realize kind of how small the world, in, world is and how close everybody is together. And that's actually one of the things that's really special about Stanford and Silicon Valley is I bet one of your professors knows, knows somebody at DFJ who knows someone at KP. Uh, there's, in fact, an amazing network here. So you guys probably are better connected than you may realize. So after looking back on this experience, you've referenced that there are many things that you learned along the way. And I think that you know, making mistakes is probably a great opportunity for you know, actually learning the most important things. And I'm wondering if you could share your perspective as what is the single biggest thing that you have learned from making a specific mistake? So what is the single biggest thing I've learned from my single biggest mistake? <laughs> wow. It's a very, very deep question. So one of the earliest mistakes I made at Nest, uh, it actually took me a long time to unwind. Uh, it was a hiring mistake, actually. Uh, so when your team is small, like literally every single person matters. Every single person matters at, at 800 people, but actually every single person matters in order of magnitude more when you're five people. And one of our first 10 employees, uh, I knew well at Apple. I had worked with him at Apple. He was an amazing, amazing engineer at Apple, uh, but was always kind of used to working at a big company and was used to kind of all the resources of the big company behind us and uh, didn't adapt well to the startup environment. And uh, it took me a very long time to realize that and a very long time to realize I had to get rid of him. And that was not an easy decision to make. It was one of my first times letting someone go. Uh, but it was actually really hard to do. And it was not hard to do in that, like, I trusted him and you know, he wasn't doing a great job. But it was hard to do in that, like, he was intertwined with the rest of the company. And like, how do you extract that out? Like, when you have this group of you know, 15, 20 people who are basically family, like, like, how do you send one of the brothers home? It's really hard to do. So when I say like, biggest mistake and biggest learning opportunity is hire very well. And that's not just based on your guts, but based on your partner's guts, based on uh, trust that kind of voice in your head. Uh, I, I actually had, I had my own questions when we first hired him. Like, is, this, is he the right guy? Is he going to be able to adapt? And I was like, he's a great guy. He's going to be able to figure it out. And I took a bet, and I was wrong. Uh, you can't always get it right, but I think the lesson learned here is not just hire well, but when you realize you've done it wrong, fix it. And... Uh, it's, it's hard to do, but actually, the sooner you do it, the better. So yeah, that's a, no worries. Right. So you mentioned that uh, in the beginning, um, in terms of business plan and strategy, you got everything wrong in the, in the beginning of the next years. And from an outsider perspective, it, it's kind of hard to believe. So I was you know, wondering, to the extent that you can talk about it, um, so if you could talk about some of the 
failures in the beginning in terms of uh, business plan and how you guys went about fixing So the question is, is, how did we get everything wrong yet make everything seem right? And uh, uh, we are really great at marketing. And I, I, I would say if there's things you could do well in a company, building your brand and building your marketing team, even when you're small, now you want to do it too early, but at the right time with the right people, uh, you actually have to do it. Uh, and actually, all two companies don't do this. All two many companies don't do this either. So uh, literally everything went wrong. You know, our first retail partner f fell away. Uh, our first product, we had a bunch of things we had to fix. We scrambled, we fixed them really quickly. We always made right with our customers. They became our biggest advocates. Uh, uh, we realized that uh, the manufacturing center we were, that was building many of the parts was shutting down, and we had to move that to somewhere else. Uh, like, like to, to the inside of the company, we were always behind. We were always struggling, and uh, we always got it wrong. And I think part of it also is our paranoia. And I think there's some truth to the, the old saying that the paranoid survive. Uh, if you're always worried about something could fail, or if you're worried about the competition, that you may actually do something about it. And it's not good just to worry, because when you just worry, it just keeps you up at night. Although everything pretty much keeps you up at night these days. Uh, but if you do something beyond letting it keep you up at night, if you actually do something about it. So actually, one of the things that we did in our culture that is, is worth noting is we would start every board meeting and every all-hands meeting with a, a slide about highlights and lowlights. And we were transparent with our board and our team. Here are the things that are going really well, and here are the things that are going really wrong. Uh, and for each of the things that were going wrong, what are we going to do about it? And we would dashboard, like, this thing is red hot. We've got to fix this. He's the guy who's going to fix it, and he's going to fix it by then. And here's an idea of how, we, of how we're going to do it. And we were very tactical about it. Uh, uh, one of our earliest employees, uh, Eric Charlton, uh, employee number three, uh, actually was a Stanford business student, actually. Uh, said some things about, like, in business school, they teach about strategy. And in fact, the business world is more about tactics. It's like 1% strategy and 99% tactics. So like, we were very good at tactics, I would say. Like, being meticulous about the details, not just about the design, but about everything we do. I have a follow-up question to my first one. It seems like you were a little non-traditional uh, to your way of approaching investors. You know, as a Harvard company, you invest your money, you hired people before even you approach um, VCs, what was the reason behind that? What, what, why was, what was the, you, you guys did that? So we had a very non-traditional start. Uh, we invested our money. We hired a head of products. Uh, we, did, we did hardware, actually. And today, people say, oh, yeah, hardware's sexy. It was not when we started, by the way. Uh, uh, that said, like, we believed. And going back to what I said earlier about being zealots, like, we were zealots. And we still are. Like, when you believe with everything you have, like, you're willing to do anything. And the earliest employees were willing to do anything. And we, we believed that this was the right product, the market needed it, and that we were able to make enormous kind of world-sized impact with what we were doing. So we pushed all in. And there was a point, uh, 2000, late 2010, when I probably had $20,000 left to my name, which for a student may actually sound like a lot, but in fact, when you have a house, it is basically zero. Uh, we pushed all in. And it was something that we felt very strongly that we had to do, that we had to build this company. Uh, and we're really glad we did. And the world is happy we did. And we're just getting started. So I want to ask you the last question. Sure. 10 years ago, you were a student. Yes. What do you wish you learned 10 mm. years ago when you were sitting in a seat? So school? I was a student 10 years ago in your chairs. What did I wish I knew? <sighs> Don't be afraid, I would say. So one of the things that you learn, especially as an engineering student, is uh, 
it's actually it's important to take you know to not to take risks to think ahead. It's part of like what makes engineers great is that kind of that deep deep detailing. Like you're worried about this. Like oh like we can't take risks. We may create a bug or we shouldn't push that new release out. It may may disrupt the customers. Uh, it's okay to take risks. You should be measured with your risks. But sometimes opportunities present themselves that may seem completely world changing, that may change your entire life for the worse or for the better. But it's worth taking. And it's not something you can learn in a classroom, I think. But fortunately, you guys actually are able to sit in classrooms like this and hear people like me speak about some of their crazy stories. And hopefully, you guys go and change the world, too. And there's enormous opportunities out there. And I really uh, hope to see great stuff from you guys, too. Thank you. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.